So a number of years ago, I had to get reconstructive knee surgery from an old football injury. And when you get reconstructive surgery, what they do is they do a graft. They take a piece of the tendon from, from uh, they took a piece of the tendon from my hamstring and they rebuilt my, my knee with that. <clears throat> now, in order for the graft to take, everything has to be aligned very well. And it's incredible the wisdom of the medical community that enables um, that, that, that en enables for that to be possible so that when the, the graft is done properly there's a life flow back through that, that knee and so here I am today you know, standing before you because life is still flowing through that spare part that got, that got moved. Today's text is from John chapter 15 and Jesus talks about a graft that creates a life flow. It's a very different graft. He refers to himself as the vine. And he talks about us like the, like the branches. And we've been going through the seven I am statements that Jesus made through the Gospel of John. This is the last one. And each time Jesus says I am, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And now here he says I am the vine. And each time he says I am, he's very intentionally causing everybody to think back to the first time they heard that God's name was I am, which is Exodus 3, where God, when they said, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am that I am sent you. And so Jesus is really intentionally pointing us back there. So each time we look at when he says I am, Jesus is giving us great insight into who this God is that we worship, why we worship him, what he's given uh, to us. Each statement gives us this insight, not only into who God is, but who we are in relation to him. And he also gives us insight into what we've been given and the life that we live as a result of what we've been given. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Each branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that, you're, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another.
This is God's word. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus talks about this relationship that we have with him. He announces, I'm the vine, and he goes on to explain that if, if he is the vine, then that has incredible implications. Two implications. Kids, if you look down at your notes, you'll see them there. Okay? The, first, the first thing this teaches us is that he gave something to you, and the second thing is he's doing something in you. Both, of course, are by grace. Now, if you're new to church or you're exploring Christian faith and you're new to the gospel, this is critical to understand. And the reason is because it separates Christian faith from all other kind of world systems and world religions. Because Jesus starts this whole thing out by saying, I'm the vine, which means if you're connected to me, I'm doing something in you and I'm doing something through you. And that's the opposite of how world religion works. Because the way that most world religions, all world religions work, is there is a system of salvation. There is a, you are saved by your progress. So if you do this and do this and do this and do this, then Allah is happy with you. If you do this and do this and do this and do this, right, then Jehovah is happy with you. If you do this and do this and do this and do this, then you are absorbed into the Brahman. Or you are, um, or you you escape the cycle of of re- constant reincarnation, and you now become this you know ethereal spirit in the universe. Every world religion, if you break them down, you've got a sage or a guru or a teacher saying the, these are the steps. But in Christian faith, and we have to start here, or else the rest of it isn't going to make sense. Because Jesus said some strong things, and you and we read them later, right? He's saying. You know, if you do this, then you're my friends. And if you do that, so if we don't understand this, the rest of it isn't going to make any sense to us. So right here, what we find at right at the beginning is that we are not saved by our progress. We're saved by Christ's perfection. We're not saved by system. We're saved by Christ the Savior. He's the vine. So Jesus is demonstrating this. So there's a whole flow to the teaching. And if you read that passage again, you're going to notice it flows like this. First, you're united, and then you're pruned. And then you're nourished, and then you bear fruit. And that's the flow. But all religious systems kind of flip it around, where it's like, you know, bear fruit. And if you bear enough fruit, then you'll be united. And if you keep on bearing fruit, you'll stay united. That's the opposite of what Jesus just taught. That's the opposite of this flow. That's not the gospel. So this is the flow of how it it, uh, comes to us from Christ. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. We're united to Christ because his grace saved us. Our hearts are being pruned and nourished by Christ because his grace is continually renewing us. And we minister the gospel of Christ because his grace empowers us. And that's the flow of this text. So in the beginning few verses, Jesus talks about this pruning. And you can't graft anything unless you clean it and prune it and prepare it. You know, I started out with that story about my knee. They didn't just go snip, snip, sew it on here. I mean, there's a lot of preparing to make sure that the life flow works. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And and it's only after a branch is cleaned and pruned that it can actually be grafted. Now, I'm not a, I don't have a green thumb, I don't understand this, so I had to research it. And here's how grafts work. If you were to try and graft a branch to a vine then there's a specific technique, and you can't just duct tape it, you know, kids. If you had, you know, you know how kids like to put seeds in cups? Have you, any of you kids ever done this? And you try and kind of grow a plant by, uh, by the window? You know, if you were to try and graft something on, you can't just take some tape and stick it on and go, yeah, it'll probably work. But there's, there's something in the branch, and there's something in the stock um, called uh, vascular cambium tissue. And that vascular cambium tissue has to be aligned. And if it isn't, the graft won't work. 
And so <clears throat> if, if the graft doesn't work, then there's no life flow, there's no nutrients, and the branch dies. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now you need to take note and how you, the branch, got united to the vine. Who did that? Who aligned that? How did that happen? In verse 3, and this is so critical for us to understand, in verse 3, Jesus, before he gets on, because there's continual pruning in our life, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but Jesus says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. So before he gets to any of the imperatives, this is what you're to do, this is how you're to live, this is the result of the life flow, he says, you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. And in the Greek, this already clean is hameas katharoi. The root word is, is, is uh, katharos, which is where we get the English word cathartic, which means to purge or to cleanse. So Jesus says, you're already cleansed, you're already purged. In fact, you c- it would be appropriate, if, when you look at the range of meaning in the Greek, it would be appropriate for Jesus to, to, to translate this as Jesus says, now you're already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Now he's talking about a continual pruning, but the point is, you can't graft yourself. He's done this by the goodness of his grace. Right? This is, the, this is uh, the essence of what he is saying, is you're pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. What was the word that Jesus spoke? I am God. I am the great I am. Seven times through the Gospel of John. I am, I am, I am, I am. I am the one. I am him. And I have come through my perfection to cleanse you, to do what you cannot do. I have already cleansed, I have already purified, I have already prepared, I have already pruned you, so you could be grafted. I've done it all. That's what verse 3 is. You are already clean because of me. And this is critical so that we can understand the rest of it in in terms of how we live in relation to all this. Because, of course, there is continual pruning that takes place in our heart and our lives. But because Jesus says you're already clean, guess what he takes off the table? Self-salvation. Salvation by works. It's off the table because he said you're already clean. It's so, it's so powerful, it's amazing. So the means by which you're brought into the Christian faith are the same means by which you live out the Christian faith. It's all by grace, front to back. So he goes on to talk about how we live these outward-facing lives of love and service and, and, and ministry and mission and witness through the continually, continual pruning. But what verse 3 uh, encourages is it, in is that he's not expecting you to reach deep down inside yourself, transform yourself, regenerate yourself into a selfless, loving person willing to give their life away. Do you remember, remember how the flow of the text goes? He goes from this pruning and then he's talking about greater love, does no, greater love has no one else to lay down his life for his friends. And he's calling his disciples, you and me by extension, to live an outward facing life. He's calling us to a life of of, of, of ministry and of grace and of giving our life away and being generous. But none of that is possible if we have to dig down deep inside ourselves and somehow self-generate that fruit. And Jesus says, that is not the way that it works. You cannot do that. You will not do that. That is what I am doing in you by my grace. And so, it's profound because <clears throat> he is uh, describing the fruit that is gradually but inevitably being produced in your hearts because you're abiding in him. And he is selfless. And he is loving. And he is willing to give his life away. And that life, church, is in a constant flow into your heart. 
because he has grafted you to himself by his grace. This is the good, the, the good news as this text unfolds, right? In other words, united to Christ means, kids, if you look down at your notes, this is the sentence I gave you. Being united to Christ means the power of his grace is constantly seeping into your heart. It's constantly seeping into your heart, and it's doing a beautiful thing. Jesus is saying the kind of life that he wants to flow through you is based on the power of his grace toward you and the power of his grace that is now right here, church, even as we sit under the word and have the gospel preached to us, the power of his grace working in you. And so the idea that we can clean and prune ourselves and align ourselves, that's the false gospel. That's just not true. We can't do it. The jaw-dropping announcement that Jesus gives when he says, you are already clean, is that you are already united to Christ by grace. You are kept in union with Christ by grace. Your heart is being nourished to live an outward-facing life of love and service because you are united to him by grace. And so <clears throat> when you get to verse 6, Jesus gives us, he juxtaposes these two striking images of the soul. He goes, you're going to go one of two directions. Flourishing and producing or withering and burning. These are the two, two trajectories of the human soul. And what's interesting about this flourishing and producing or withering and burning is that Jesus doesn't teach that the soul flourishes or withers on the basis of what you're doing. What he's teaching here is your soul is flourishing or withering on the basis of where you're abiding, which in turn becomes the undercurrent that drives why you're doing what you're doing. For example, you can, on the surface, all of our actions can look the same. And I think the, the, the popular opinion or the cultural conversation about God is it's like, do good things and God's happy with you and you go to heaven. Do bad things and God gets angry with you and he sends you to hell. Which if that were true, which it isn't, if, then, what, then really the, what's saving you are the things that you're doing. Do you see that? Do good things, you go to heaven. Do bad things, you go to hell. What saves you? Do things. So what Jesus is saying is, now underneath the thing you're doing is where your heart is abiding in. And that is... That is actually the undercurrent for everything you're doing. For example, you can, you can um, care for others uh, because your soul is abiding in Christ and you truly care for others. Or you can care for others because you find rest in being seen as a good person and you're doing it out of guilt or you're doing it out of obligation. Right? How many of you ever had family members who it's like they will go over and above and make themselves a martyr to help out, but they make sure everybody knows they're a martyr, and they make you feel guilty for not being a martyr, right? But on the surface, it's like, oh, well, are they giving of their time and energy? And yeah, they are, but underneath it, where's their heart abiding? You see, so it's not, it's not the things that we're doing. And of course, and I know, and I should say this, there are, there are <clears throat> immoral, detrimental, devastating things that can be done. So I'm not giving a free pass uh, to sin. I'm not giving a free pass to darkness or oppression or injustice or, or any of these things. Of course, there are things we can do um, that hurt others, right? But I'm, uh, what I'm talking about is underneath all of it, though, there are things we can do that look the same on, for, that for the church, for you, you're not, you're not in this room <coughs> likely running off and doing something that's 100% contrary to God's word. Likely. Okay? Now, the, uh, the education or career or business pursuits we can do 
from, uh, a, from a position of, of rest and abiding in Christ. And so we're using all our gifts and the glory to make the city flourish. But we can also pursue all those things because our soul is abiding and looking intelligent and successful. And so on the surface it looks the same, but underneath it. Or we can be, uh, give our time away, our talent away, our finances away because we're abiding in Christ and we're generous. Or we can do all of those things yeah, because we want to be seen as a good person. Or we can come to church on Sunday because our, our heart is abiding in Christ and we truly love him. Or we can come to church on Sunday because our heart is abiding and being seen like, we've, like we're a good person. And so we should punch the clock because if we miss too many Sundays, somebody's going to start to wonder where we are. And we wouldn't want that. So we have to look the part and make sure that we're there enough so that everybody's like, okay, that person's okay. You understand? I don't care if you have 100% church attendance or 50%. I mean, the point is when your heart is abiding in Jesus, you want to worship him. And so if we just get to this man, uh, the surface of how often am I here on a Sunday, you know, it can look the same. One person can be here because they're abiding in Jesus and their soul is at rest and they're sitting next to a person who's like, it's been a few weeks, I should go. Somebody's going to notice. This is just human nature. It's the abiding. So the soul flourishes when we worship Christ, when we turn to him for strength and peace and rest. But the soul withers when we worship something or someone else and we turn to that thing for strength and peace and rest. And hence Jesus gives the introductory of that. It says either flourishing or burning. This is the words of Jesus. This is how he says, this is how it plays out. <clears throat> but of course, the good news of the gospel is that he's the one that grafts you in. And therefore, that life flow has implications. And, that, and so it's this context of abiding in him and loving him and having his grace seep into our heart. This is the context for verse 7 when Jesus says, ask whatever you will and it will be done. Now imagine if you omit everything that I've said up to this point and you just cherry pick that verse out. And you just go, hey, man, the Bible says, ask whatever you will, and it will be done. Okay. Uh, well, we're definitely going to misunderstand it. We're definitely going to misapply it. Um, in 1940, Disney put a movie out called Pinocchio. Have any of the kids seen this? Any of the big kids seen this? 1940's Pinocchio. And in it, there's this point where Jiminy Cricket comes out and he sings this song. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires Will come to you Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus... Is this like what Jesus said and what Jiminy Cricket said are the same thing? Right? That's how to interpret the Bible. Just anything your heart... Jesus seemed to say it. He see it. Look, it just says it right there. Yeah, but when we go into the context, he's like, the grace of Christ is seeping into your heart. Which means, you don't make yourself more like Jesus. Jesus makes you more like Jesus. Which means there's a recalibration going on here. There's things that are going to drop away. That you're going to stop loving. And there's other things that you're going to start loving. There's this beautiful renewal because of what his grace is doing. And it's in that context that he says, ask what you will and it will be done. If I just cherry pick it out, then what I'm going to pray for this afternoon is an Aston Martin DB9. Because I'm, I'm only thinking about the kingdom because I'll get everywhere faster. Which would technically mean that if I'm ministering, that the gospel's going out faster. So think about the kingdom, people. Right? Uh, Every pastor should have an Aston Martin DB9. It's, it's very easy to just go, well, you know, the Bible says we seem to be able to ask whatever we want and he'll do it. But the context is this abiding. It's this reforming power of God's grace. And he says, in my name. 
So again, we've been studying for eight weeks the name. What is the name? Who is this? He says, if you ask anything, in my name. Well, the name is the great I am. In the, in, in, in the Hebrew, it's Eich Asar Eich. So Jesus says, you ask anything in the one who brings all things into being and has always brought everything into being. So he says, if you ask anything in, in context of that, it's going to come to pass. We're being boldly invited to pray in the name of the one who brings everything to pass. That's a very liberating way to pray. Because Jesus isn't burdening you with the daunting and impossible task of knowing God's will. Instead, he grafts you into himself like a vine so that more and more what you want is God's will. What you trust most is God's will. What you believe is the best in every situation is God's will. So you ask boldly in his name for God to do his will in prayer in every situation. And this is the tremendous gift. This is the liberating way of praying. When Jesus taught the model prayer in Matthew 6, and we pray it every week, he says we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus isn't mixing it up here. Okay, I know I said your will be done on earth, but now I'm, gonna, now I'm saying you ask anything you will. Ask your will and he'll do it. He'll endorse your will. Jesus isn't like mixing it up here. It's still his will. Here's the thing I know in my life is that when... The idea of praying your will be done seems like it's going to result in a divine disappointment. I know I'm not abiding. I need to like stop, repent, rest, recalibrate. Oh, God, help me. Because in this situation, <clears throat> if I just pray and say, oh, God, this is what I would ask. Would you do this? But may your will be done. If I somehow think that saying may your will be done jinxes the prayer because now I'm not in faith. Praying your will be done is the prayer of faith. Not praying your will be done is not a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of presumption. You're presuming to know the will of God. He's united you to the vine so that as his grace seeps into your heart, increasingly we want what he wants. So that when we have those moments of prayer where like, I don't even know where to begin and what to pray, we can confidently pray, oh God, may your will be done. <clears throat> and we can find tremendous rest in that. And so the passage goes on to give us more great news in verses 8 and 9, where he says, It's by this the Father is glorified that we bear much fruit and we prove ourselves to be his disciples. And the good news here is that the bearing of the fruit is the result of what he's done. He's not burdening us to bear the fruit. Because you want to know something? Branches, in and of themselves, are incapable of bearing fruit. And he says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. The fruit, the result the outward-facing life of love that you're to be living is not a result of you doing more and trying harder. It's going to be a result of your part in this whole equation is abiding. It's the subject of the whole text. It's the abiding. It's the stopping. It's the resting. It's the meditating. It's the praying. It's the worshiping. It's, the re it's, it's passive. Your relationship to, toward God because he has united you to the vine is passive. Which is why the text flows to a horizontal way of relating to everybody around you. This church and this city that's is very active. But it's liberating and free. Because it's not, we're not burdened to bear the fruit. He is the one that bears uh, the fruit in our life. We're called to do the abiding. We're called to abide. To continually rest and to pray. And to trust. To let his grace seep into our souls. So that he produces the fruit of that outward facing life of love and service towards others. 
And it's because of his perfection, his life, his death, his resurrection, that he's grafted us in, that our relationship before God is passive. It is a passive righteousness. Because that's what God's grace is for you. But your relationships with one another and in this city are active. It's an active righteousness. It's because that's what God's grace is producing in you and doing through you. Which is why in verse 10, (coughs) Jesus goes on to say, Keep my commands and abide in my love, just as I have. And that's, this is actually good news for us. It's not like a divine guilt trip. If you love me, you'll take the garbage out. If you love me, you'll do the dishes. If you, if you love me, you'd prove it by doing this. That's not the tone. Jesus isn't saying to his disciples, here's how you'll, here's how you'll prove you're my disciples. You know, you're going to go and do this. What, he is, what Jesus is saying is, you, have been, you are already clean, verse 3. You are already clean. You're already grafted. There is a life flow of my grace. And so now, the proof of that is that it produces this. It's not a divine guilt trip. God is not, God is not guilt tripping the disciples and he's not guilt tripping you. So when he says, keep my commands and abide in my love, here's the key. Jesus says, just as I have. What does that mean? Why is that an encouragement to your soul and not a crushing blow to your soul? Well, the reason is because Jesus was not frantically obeying the Father in the hopes of gaining the Father's acceptance. To obey as Jesus was, which is what he says, is Jesus was willingly and gladly obeying because he already had the Father's unconditional acceptance. So when Jesus says, you obey as I have, he's not guilt-tripping you. He's actually describing the new you. He's calling you to say, live according to who you actually are now, because there's a life flow coming into your heart. It's not a cold instruction. It's a grace-drenched, gospel-driven description of who he's making you. And if you say, well, Paul, this sounds amazing, but I look in the mirror and I don't see that person. I believe you. Because so often I look in the mirror and I'm like, you know, I'm not sure I see this person either. You have moments, you have glimpses, you have times, but it's like it's this continual ongoing work in all of us as his grace is seeping into our heart. But you want to know something? Those of us who are united and abiding to the divine, this is exactly what we want. You see, when you're united to God by grace, when you're trusting in Jesus and abiding in him, you read all of those instructions and your heart says, that's precisely what I want. That's precisely who I want to be. Oh God, forgive me that I fall all over myself and fail to do that. But that is what I want. That's what his grace does. It engenders the desire. Right? And so that's why uh, Jesus speaks about it in this way. He says, do it as I obey obey as I did. He wasn't frantically looking to heaven going, boy, God, I hope you're okay with this. He was obeying the Father from joy because he already knew that he was secure in the Father's love. And so are you. And so in verse 11, Jesus explicitly states why he said this whole thing, which is always very helpful, right? This is why I can confidently tell you that I'm not wondering what the interpretation of this text is because Jesus gives it. I'm simply telling you what Jesus said. In verse 11, Jesus explicitly says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full. The whole point of the abiding and the fruit-bearing and the, and the pruning and the ministering is joy, a life of joy. Now, I think that it would seem like 
connecting commands with joy is an oxymoron, right? Commands and joy. Should those things go together? You know, jumbo shrimp like that? Uh, you know, the airline food? Do these things go together? I'm not sure that they do. But Jesus is putting these things together intentionally because it's a, the, the, the joy is the byproduct of the soul that's abiding and resting and propelled by grace. See, if we omit the rest of grace, if we omit the strength that comes with worshiping Jesus, if we omit the centrality of Christ, if I omitted the first half of this text and just read it and then just jumped into a church, we just read the word of God, we got to obey his commands. Not only do we have to obey him, I'm reading it right here. The text says we're supposed to obey just as Christ obeyed. So let's all get out there on Monday, try a little harder than we tried last week, because Lord knows all of you failed at it. Seven for seven. Nobody went seven days this week perfectly loving and trusting in God, and nobody went seven days this week perfectly loving and trusting their neighbor. So let's all roll our sleeves up. Do you understand? If you omit that life flow, you're left with this crushing uh, dead religion that puts you on a treadmill with no off switch, sucking the joy out of your soul, like entering a marathon with no finish line. That's why Jesus starts this the way that he does. He starts this in this beautiful and powerful uh, way by saying, you are already clean. Now let's get to this life of love, of outward-facing ministry that we live, propelled by the goodness of my grace. Why? So that your joy would be full. So that you would live this joyous uh, life. And so at the end of the passage, Jesus makes this radical statement. It's a paradigm shift in in a big way. And how we're supposed to relate to all of these commands. Because at the end of the text, in verse 15, he, does, he says, But I'm not asking you to do this as servants. I'm calling you friends. Now, that is an unprecedented way to relate to God. There is no other religion on the planet where the one who is your God and your king is also calling you a friend. That doesn't mean you have a casual relationship with God. It means you have a a radically intimate relationship with God. Jesus didn't demote himself from Lord and be like, we're just going to be buds. So if you're not into, you know, my commands, it's okay. We're pals. Fist pump. No, he's the king. You bend your knee. When you open the Bible and it says something that's contradictory to how you think, you have a problem. You're like, oh boy, okay, now I got to really wrestle with with this because this isn't what I this isn't what I believe this isn't how I see the world this isn't what I think about this situation I don't share this ethic but now the bible is asking me to bend my knee to it if you're not grafted to the vine and there's not grace seeping into your heart guess what you're not going to want to do it and the whole bible is irrelevant anyways but if you are united to Christ if you are united and grafted to the vine, Jesus says you are already clean, which means my grace is already doing its work, which means you will bend your knee to the Lord of the universe, who is your king, but yet you're going to do it with such joy and gladness in your heart because you're not some sort of servant that he's just commanding around. You're a friend. There's this intimacy. There's this, there's this beautiful love that we see. He calls you friend. The sole purpose of a vine is to bear fruit and loving one another is not just a command for you. It's a gracious description of the renewed you. And so, church, may we live outward-facing lives of love and service 
toward one another here in this community. May we live outward-facing lives of love and service in this city, at work, on campus, when you go to school, in our community. May God do it, because the same grace that rescued us is pruning us. We don't prune each other. We're not the pruners. God is the one that does the pruning. And he prunes our hearts by grace. And he's continually cutting away <coughs> the things that we turn to to find life in, to find rest in, to find fulfillment in. And he, he cuts those things off and prunes those things away. Why? So that there can be joy. So that it can be full. So that we can rest. So that we can minister the goodness of his grace. It's gradual. Sometimes it's imperceptible. But church, it is inevitable. This is the good news of the gospel, of not only what God's grace is for you, but what God's grace is doing in you. Let's pray.